His goodness is running after us. I love that. Um, that's what I hope to talk about today in the sermon, that His goodness has been running after us since the beginning of time. Um, at the beginning of creation, uh, the Bible tells us that, that God walked with man in the Garden of Eden, that He would speak directly to them, that they, they could hear His footsteps and see His form, and it was good. It was very good. Until man, of course, decided to go his own way and choose his own decisions over relationship with God. And so, because man brought this evil into the world, it, it caused a separation between us and God. God could no longer physically dwell with us, walk with us in person because of the sin that we had committed. But God didn't abandon his creation, even though it was getting worse and worse after that. It was filled with violence, the, the Bible said, the world was at that time after Adam and Eve sinned. That, that people would, would kill their own family members, that, that pride and selfishness overtook this, this very good creation. But God didn't abandon them. Instead, he chose, he chose people through which he would speak to the world. He, he, he represented himself through a man named Abraham, and then through his son Isaac and Jacob, and then eventually it would be through the, the entire nation of Israel that he would try and reconcile the world back to himself. But it wasn't enough. The world was still distant from God. It still had that broken relationship. And ever since the beginning, God has been trying to redeem this relationship, to restore relationship with mankind, to bridge the gap that was created by our sin. And as Hebrews 1 puts it, God has spoken to us at many times and in various ways. He, he spoke to us through his people, through, through prophets. Uh, he spoke to us through animals and, and through plagues and miracles and nature. And today, uh, we are going to look at how God has spoken throughout history in the Old Testament. Uh, and we're going to then look at how he speaks to us today. We're going to try and answer the question, how do we hear God speaking today? Uh, now, over the last 10 weeks, we've been going through our series called Yesterday, Today, and Forever, where we look at the character of God in the Old Testament stories, and we see how his character is unchanging, how it remains the same towards us today. And uh, today, we're actually going to be wrapping up this series with the story of Solomon building the temple, uh, an amazing story here. But uh, before we get there, uh, before Israel ever made it into the promised land for uh, King David and his son to build the temple, uh, the Israelites were a nation that wandered through the desert for 40 years. They'd just come out of Egypt, uh, they'd seen a bunch of miracles, and Moses was their leader. And during their wandering, uh, as they were going through the desert, God spoke through Moses, uh, but he also called the Israelites to build something called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, um, it was basically an incredibly ornate chest. It was made with gold, wood, all these different materials. And God said that he would put his presence in this ark and be with his people through uh, this, this basically incredible chest that he made or that the Israelites made. Now, it was, it was very different than the relationship or the physical closeness God had with his people in the Garden of Eden, but we can see how relationship was being restored. His presence was with man in the world again. But it wasn't enough, right? Even, even though this nation had the physical presence of God, they would carry this ark of God's presence into battle with them and it would help them win victories. 
But it still wasn't enough. The, the Israelites, if you've read much of the Bible, you know that they constantly fail. They do well, and then they fail, and then they fail some more and more and more, uh, just like all of us do at times. Uh, but they were, they were far from knowing God, and, and the world was still at large far from God too. So after the Israelites finish wandering in the deserts, they're finally settled in their land, and then we come to a time of King David, and he decides to build a permanent place for God to dwell in instead of just this, taber- or this, this ark that was moving uh, and this tabernacle that was um, mobile, that they could move it around. And so here's where we're going to pick up the story. Uh, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 22, uh, 1 Chronicles 22, we're going to read verses 6 to 10 here. 1 Chronicles 22. Then he called for his son Solomon, David called for his son, and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all of his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is, the only, he is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, all throughout history, uh, people have been using their, their God-given creativity to build some pretty incredible things. Um, it, we have... Uh, we have massive structures, even still to this day. We have uh, the Great Pyramid of Egypt that took thousands of people, uh, thousands of hours to build. We have uh, the Great Wall of China, which is an incredible structure, uh, just vast. Uh, even the Colosseum is an, is an incredible building it's of its size for uh, the tools and for the resources they had back then. Um, other people used their, their creativity to build intricate and detailed artwork, like the Sistine Chapel, uh, or, or Angkor Wat in, in Cambodia. There's, there's been some incredible buildings and, and designs over the years, but nothing was quite like the temple that Solomon built. Uh, it, was, it was literally like, unlike anything else we've seen in this world. The closest thing we have nowadays is uh, actually the Islamic temple that was built on the location of Solomon's temple, but that's the closest we could get to it. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't just the size of the building or the materials. It was also the, the land significance uh, that it was built on. Uh, the temple was built on Mount Moriah, where, if you remember from the time of Abraham, um, it was the location where Abraham was going to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Uh, but then God stepped in and provided another sacrifice on his behalf. So it was built on that same, that same rock, basically, that same mountain. It, it, it was... It's significant because it, it symbolized, first of all, a place where God provided sacrifice on man's behalf. So we get that, but also it was, it was an important location because uh, during the time of King David, one thing that he did in disobedience to God was number his army. Uh, he counted up his fighting men, and uh, God was displeased with this, and so uh, he chose to send his angel, of, uh, uh, God's angel, to send a plague upon his people. And in, in the case of the land itself, uh, the angel stopped, uh, stopped uh, sending this plague on the Israelites at this exact location. Again, the same spot 
where Abraham had gone to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And in, in this instance, it was, it was a marker of God's mercy to provide salvation instead of death, in the midst of death. But that's, that's just the, the, the significance of the land on which it was built. Um, it's crazy. The size of the temple, the materials used, it was magnificent. Uh, just to give some perspective, between Solomon and King David, his father, who actually collected a lot of resources for his son to build this place, uh, between the two, they collected over 8 million pounds of gold and 76 million pounds of silver, it says. 76 million pounds of silver. I can't even fathom what that's like. Uh, but again, just to give some reference, if we were to um, calculate the cost of those materials into modern-day prices, uh, just the silver and the gold alone would be over $200 billion worth of material. $200 billion. The, the crazy part is that $200 billion worth of silver and gold wasn't used to pay labor. It was literally material used to build the temple itself. $200 billion worth of resources. That's insane. Uh, on top of the other materials that were used in the construction of the temple, uh, it says that there was iron, copper, tin, wood, uh, and other resources beyond measure that was used in the construction of this temple. Like They could count 76 million pounds of silver, but not... It's, it's incredible. It was beyond extravagant, but that was the point, right? It was supposed to house the name of the living God. It was supposed to be this place where people knew that God dwelled with man again. It was supposed to be incredible. It was a place where people could come from every nation and meet with the living God. They could offer their prayers up in this place, and God would hear them. And, and, and like I just said, more than being a place for just the nation of Israel, because up until this point, God was revealing himself through this people. But now there was this temple, there was this location where other nations could come to know God, where everyone had access to him. No longer was God just revealing himself through one person, through one nation. It was to the world now. And... and you didn't even have to be near the temple. In fact, it said that even if you faced the temple uh, from wherever you were in the world, the Lord would hear your prayers. But after the temple was completed, uh, Solomon gave a prayer of dedication. It took about seven years uh, and thousands and thousands of people to build. And uh, I just want to read a short snippet of Solomon's prayer that he, he says to dedicate this building. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, when he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all people on earth may know that your name, uh, that your, uh, may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Now that's why uh, it's actually very common for um, modern Jews uh, and actually in the practice of Islam as well, why they face the Holy Land, why a lot of people face east when they pray, uh, because they still believe that the direction in which you pray is very important for God to be able to hear you. Uh, but aside from that, um, God, was, God was working to restore the relationship that had been broken by mankind. Again, it wasn't just one person or one nation that had access to God. It was, it was for everyone. And, and God was revealing himself. And, and in this process, it was becoming more and more visible how he would reconcile humanity back to himself. 
And in Isaiah 56, God says this about his temple. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others uh, to them besides those already gathered. He's referring to not, or people from uh, with outside of the nation of Israel. So people now had a place where they could go to meet with God. They, again, it was, it was far from the intimacy that God had with Adam and Eve as he walked beside them, but there was hope. There was, there was restoration, and we can see that God was continuing to draw humanity back to himself. He was creating space for relationship to happen again. They could, um, people who came to the temple could offer sacrifices so that they could be in right standing with God again, as that was the, the cost of sin. They could face the temple from wherever they were, and God would hear their prayers. They could um, come, to the, come to the temple itself and hear God's law read aloud and know the truth and direction that he put in place to live well. Relationship with God and man was getting better and better. But the temple wasn't enough. As, as grand and spectacular as it was, as incredible as it was, sacrifices still had to be made on a daily basis. As soon as you left, you could sin again and you would have to repeat uh, the same practice of sacrificing uh, I mean, people would forget the law. They would literally leave the temple and then forget everything they just heard within the temple. Um, and if you didn't have Google Maps to tell you which direction the temple was, then maybe God won't hear you. Um, and in typical human fashion, if you know the story, Israel continued to disobey God and continued to go their own way, just like we do. And so about uh, 372 years after Solomon constructed the temple, uh, the temple fell to the Babylonians. It was leveled, and the place where Israel and, and the people of the world could meet with God and know him again was gone. Now, eventually, another temple was built. It was kind of a sad replacement for the old one because they didn't have the same resources. Uh, people could, again, face the second temple. They could go there to sacrifice. Uh, they could go there to hear God's law read aloud, but again, it wasn't enough. It did nothing to actually take away people's sins. It just placated God's judgment until they sinned again. They continually had to make sacrifices to be close to God. I mean, not only that, but uh, God gave them 613 commandments in the Old Testament, in the Torah, and then summarized it down into 10, and even then, they couldn't follow it. Even then, they disobeyed. It was only 10 rules. I remember uh, this past Wednesday, for youth, we went out to Leduc Common to shop for Christmas shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child. And before we ever got on the bus, uh, before we left the building, I, I told the kids what the rules were. And four times, four different times, I told them that you had to stay with your group for the rest of the evening. You cannot go wandering. I don't want you to go getting lost within uh, the parking lot or whatever. And I literally told the kids, too, if they didn't make it back on the bus, they were sleeping at Walmart. Um, no kids slept at Walmart, uh, but um, I told them four different times that they had to stay with their group for the rest of the evening, and it was like, everyone, quiet, make eye contact with me. Okay, great. Herding cats. It's amazing. I love it. Um, but I remember uh, we, we all got onto the bus. We went to Ladue Common. We started shopping, and two minutes, two minutes after we got off the bus, we went to the store. Uh, a kid comes up to me, and he's like, hey, Scott, I was wondering if I could just run over to Tim Hortons and grab a snack. And I'm, I told you four times. I'm, uh, no, it's okay. I, 
I'm sure I got a little taste of how God feels towards me at times too. Um, I didn't say that out loud. That was what my thoughts were. It was, it was more of a, I'm sorry, no, you can't. Inner voice, inner voice, God. But following rules isn't really our strong suit. I, I, I do the same thing. I'm not, um, I'm not any different than the Israelites, than the youth. Following rules, like I said, isn't our strong suit. It never was, and that's why the temple wasn't enough. That's why it never actually could fulfill its intended purpose of restoring this relationship between man and God. But you see, the temple was only one step in God's plan to reveal himself. Part of it was revealed in the beginning, at the the very uh, start of creation after man had sinned, and God said that man would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bite at his heel. We then, we then see the next step revealed in Abraham where God would be a blessing to all of the nations through this one man. Then we have the temple. But again, something more magnificent than the temple was coming. And all of these things were pointing towards it. Something more magnificent than the temple itself. Something more redeeming than the sacrifices that people would offer. Something more present than just a, a stationary building that people could come to. And God told them about this. God told them through his prophets that, that he was going to do this. And so, in, in, uh, sorry, through the prophet Jeremiah, he says these words. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they didn't remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This was the hope for the world. This was the culmination of God's plan to reconcile humanity back to himself because of this divide that we had put there because of our own selfish choices. That God would do something to restore our relationship with him because we never could, right? The temple proved that. We had to continually offer sacrifices. We would forget the law as soon as we left the building. We would never actually keep ourselves from stumbling, from making mistakes along the way. There was never enough sacrifices to mitigate God's judgment. So, God revealed the next part of his plan. He was going to send a Messiah, a a Savior who would restore this broken relationship with mankind once for all. He was better than the temple in every way. His sacrifice would be a lasting sacrifice. It wasn't something that continually had to be offered again and again. It wasn't just temporary appeasement. He would inscribe the law on our hearts and our minds so that when we, if we don't have the physical uh, temple with us, then we can still know and recognize God's word. His presence would be in the world, just not one stationary location anymore. So, that's a lot of how God has spoken, uh, which brings us to the question, how do we hear from God today? God revealed himself through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the ark, through Moses, the nation of Israel, through the temple, and then in the perfect representation of himself in Jesus. 
But Jesus isn't really walking around Israel anymore, right? You couldn't buy a plane ticket, go to Judea, and sit down with him for a cup of coffee. So how do we hear God's voice? If Jesus was the culmination of those plans, and because we're on this side of history, we know that for 2,000 years Jesus has done his work, and that now he speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 4, Jesus is passing through Samaria, and if you remember a bit of context here, the Israelites and the Samaritans weren't really uh, happy with each other. Um, Both of them had different ideas on how to worship God, and technically the Israelites were right and the Samaritans were wrong in their temple, but it made it confusing for people to know God because they weren't sure how to worship him. Uh, Samaria had their own temple. Jerusalem had their own temple. And so they weren't quite sure how to worship God anymore. And um, in, in this weird conversation, this woman asks Jesus, well, then how do, we, how do we worship? How do we even get to know God? Because you Jews say that it's in, it's in Israel that we have to worship God, and my people say that it's in Samaria here. And in their conversation, Jesus replies with this. He says, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain in Samaria nor in Jerusalem, where the temple was located. The time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, relationship with God was no longer a location. It wasn't about going to a specific place to hear God. It was a heart shaped by the spirit and truth. Now, it's, it's important to note here that, that Jesus mentions it's the spirit and truth, right? Because up until this point, they really still did have truth available to them. God's law was available, and if God were to just say, well, my worshipers will worship in truth, then if we think about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they would have been done like a bang-up job of that. They were the best at it. They, they technically knew the truth, but they weren't impacted by it. The Spirit didn't take that truth deep into their hearts and transform them. They didn't allow it to. It was a heart transformed by the Spirit and truth, not just one that knew the truth. And and I think that we, just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, sometimes we can take truth and use it as a weapon, right? We We can use it against others to make sure that we're right instead of being transformed ourselves by it. We can cause a lot of damage. So, when our need to be right comes before our willingness to love others, then we miss the point. If our our attitude or perspective about things like the government or vaccines, for instance, comes before our willingness to love others, then we miss the point. If we take truth on our own, we can cause damage. We need to be shaped by the truth. We need to allow the Spirit to work on us, to transform us. So, that's a lot of information, perhaps, um, again, on how God has spoken uh, and how he speaks to us through the Spirit. Now, for the next few minutes, I just want to talk very practically. How do we hear God's voice today? What does it sound like? Um, how does the Spirit speak? Uh, well, first, uh, one way that the Spirit speaks is by reminding us of the words that Jesus said. Uh, so, in, in John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's, he's explaining to them that I am going to leave you, but don't worry. I'm going to be leaving this world, but I'm going to send you another. And he's going to be called the Holy Spirit. And one of the first things that Jesus says that this Spirit does 
is that it will remind you, my disciples, uh, of everything that I have said to you. So what does that look like for us? How does the Spirit remind us of the things that Jesus has spoken? Have you ever, have you ever experienced a moment where maybe you're in need of something, maybe you are worried, afraid, uh, maybe you're being proud or something else, and uh, a perfect verse kind of pops into your mind? You know, like you're, you're, you're feeling anxious about something or you're worrying about something, and then in the midst of that, what pops into your mind is the place in Matthew where Jesus says, don't worry, you know, God takes care of the sparrows, surely he takes care of you, you're worth more than many sparrows. Or, or when you want to make that really snide remark because that person said something mean about you, and what pops into your mind is turn the other cheek, or they allow God to take vengeance. That's the voice of the Spirit, reminding us of the things Jesus has said. Now, it's important to recognize what Jesus said is that will remind you of everything I have said. The disciples were with Jesus constantly. They knew what he said. The Spirit was simply going to bring it back to their minds. Now, for us, if we never actually read our Bibles, it's kind of hard for the Spirit to bring to mind the things that Jesus said. We need to know what Jesus said. And the work of the Spirit is reminding us of those things in the moments when we need it. That's the voice of the Spirit. The Spirit speaks truth to us in our moments of need. When we, when we feel too broken for God to fix, he reminds us that Jesus came to heal and save the lost. When we feel lost and in need of direction, the Spirit reminds us to ask God for the things that we need, and he is faithful to give us if we believe. So, that's one very practical way the Spirit speaks to us, by reminding us of what Jesus said in, in Scripture and reminding us in those moments that we need it most. So that's the first way. Second, the Spirit speaks comfort and direction to us. Um, in, in the book of John, uh, the, the Greek word used for Holy Spirit that he uses often um, in, his, in his gospel is paraclete, the word paraclete. And if we directly translate that word into English, it means something like a legal advisor or a counselor or a helper, an advocate. And we don't, we don't get the idea of someone who stands far off and is like, yeah, go that direction. Uh, you, you better get the idea of someone who is there making the decision with you, who's there supporting you, who's there beside you, helping you, who counsels you, comforts you. We have a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit where he guides us in the way that we need. It's, uh, I, I, I like the idea of uh, a parent trying to teach their kid to ride a bike, for instance. Uh, in the same way the Holy Spirit, um, when you're trying to teach your child to ride your bike, first off, you give them training wheels, so they're not going to fall over constantly, but as, as they're getting better and better, eventually you come and you grab the handlebars alongside them, and you're with them, and you tell them, you give them encouraging um, in encouragement, you tell them, yeah, keep pedaling, keep straight, eventually you let go of the handlebars, and you encourage them some more, you're doing great, yep, keep steady, keep pedaling, and then crash, they hit the tree or the hedge or whatever, and as a parent, you... you Go up to them and you, you walk over to the child and you hold them and you comfort them, you encourage them, and you get them back up and encourage them to try again. In the same way the Spirit comes alongside us and in those moments where we are down, where we've fallen, where we've stumbled, the Spirit comes in, in, alongside us and encourages us. He, he holds us up. He dusts us off when we fall and he points us in the right, right direction and gets us going again. All we need to do is ask the Spirit for direction. 
All we need to do is ask the Spirit for the things that we need. Now, the Spirit was just as present, or is just as present to us now as Jesus was to the disciples back in that day. They could speak face to face with him, and though it's a little different for us, we don't have you know, a person standing beside us like George, the Holy Spirit. Um, we can't look to someone physically, but we can have that same closeness with God, that same intimacy with him. It's the same for us. We can speak directly to God through the Spirit and ask for the help that we need. And he's faithful to provide comfort and direction when we need it most. He's our advocate and our counselor. So that's the second way. He, he, he speaks direction. He helps us along the way. He's our counselor, our advisor. Third, the Spirit reminds us and speaks to us and helps us to know that we're not alone. Now, uh, it's common when we go through difficulties to remember uh, that we are not alone. When we, when we go through painful experiences, we sometimes feel like we've been abandoned by maybe God or by others, by everyone. And usually what happens when, when you feel that distance between yourself and God is, is you forget that he's with you and that he loves you. When, you. when you don't recognize his closeness, it's easy to think that he's abandoned us, that he's left us on our own. And so in our feelings of abandonment, we turn to things that won't abandon us. Right? We turn to things like alcohol or porn or an unhealthy relationship, food, fill in the blank. We turn to things out of our loneliness because we know that they will always be there for us. We know that they're not going to turn us down. God won't either, but these things seem a little more present to us. There's this uh, country song uh, that, where, where the artist, he talks about all the things in life that have let him down, like his truck, his dog, his wife, his boss, in like typical country song fashion. Um, but the, the, the main line of the chorus goes like this, beer never broke my heart. And it's, it's, it's true though, right? For him, perhaps, those unhealthy habits haven't let him down because they're always available to us. Maybe he can't see how much they're hurting him at this point too, but that's how we feel. We feel like these things aren't going to let us down. They're there for us constantly, unlike God or that's how it feels at times. Those unhealthy habits will always be there for us to turn to, but so is God. And compared to those other things, what's, why, do, why do we turn to these unhealthy habits? They have nothing to offer us. God has life and love and truth. These things only tear us away from him more and more. And the only remedy to help us stop turning to those things when we're feeling low, lonely, whatever it might be, is to drive it into the most stubborn parts of our hearts and our minds that God loves us and that he won't abandon us. We need to believe that somehow more than, more than anything else in this world. We need to constantly remind ourselves that he loves us, that he won't abandon us. The Spirit is always with us, whether or not we have a job, whether or not we have friends, whether or not we've failed a million times or just once, the Spirit will never leave us or abandon us. Since, since Adam and Eve brought sin into the world by their choices, God has been trying to restore relationship again with mankind. He's been trying to get back to what it was in the Garden of Eden. He's been at work for thousands and thousands of years in the hopes that you sitting here today would be redeemed back to Him in relationship. My encouragement to you this week is to do whatever it takes to remind yourself that God loves you. 
do whatever it takes. If, if it means doing something silly like writing on post-it notes and posting those everywhere for yourself to see, if it's getting up first thing in the morning and reminding yourself of the things that you maybe don't feel but know are truth, whatever that might be, ask the Holy Spirit for guidance. But God has been ruthlessly seeking relationship with you. And we need to be just as ruthless in our attempt to understand his love for us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you that all along you have been trying to restore relationship with us, that you love us enough to send your one and only son into this world so that we can be with you again, that we can know you, that we can see you face to face. And Father, we thank you that one day we will. We thank you that we have this incredible hope to look forward to. Not only that, but we have this incredible promise of your presence with us through the Spirit. Father, we ask that you would help instill into our minds and our hearts an understanding of your love that will weather us through the difficulties that we face. And in the moments of loneliness, I pray for those who feel distant from God. I pray that in this moment now, you would reveal yourself to them, that you would show yourself present. Father, as we attempt to recognize your, your presence with us, Help us. We need you, and we thank you that you are faithful to help. God, we thank you that your goodness is chasing after us. Help us to understand your love for us a little better this week. I pray these things in your name. Amen.